0: Welcome with intro music.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. That's
0: right. Welcome to Two Guys in the Bible. It's a conversation on theology, culture, and God's Word. My name is Dylan Keniston, and I'm joined this morning by Senior Eric Leupold. How are you doing this morning, I'm, Eric? I'm a little sleepy, but doing good. A little sleepy. Well, yeah, it's, Coming off the midnight shift. Really? Yeah. So, what is, how often are you on the midnight shift? Uh, is it like a pretty regular every thing? Every three months yeah. for a month. Well, we're switching, so we're actually recording this a little bit out of order. Last week, we recorded episode four, which was on marriage. This week, we're recording episode three on herman, hermeneutics. Yeah. And, uh, herman who? Hermeneutics. herman yeah, Hermeneutics. hermeneutics. Her- we're, we're, we did a bit of a role reversal. So last week, I, I felt <laughs> I was like I had neither notes nor tea nor sleep, and yeah. uh, and and here we are in a bit of a role re- reversal here. That's
2: right. I have notes, no No, sleep, and no tea, but I don't drink tea. You don't drink tea. That's right. You're a coffee guy. Uh,
0: Recent convert.
2: uh, Yeah, recent. Reluctant (laughs) coffee. A reluctant
0: convert. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, today we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, hermeneutics. Um, Hermeneutics? What what in the world even is hermeneutics? And uh, what we really want to think through today is uh, principles of interpretation, right? So... Here's the thing. We, we, we want to, uh, you know, two guys in a Bible, right? So that kind of insinuates that we're going to be doing some work with Scripture and with the Bible. Um, but as we think about the Bible and as we think about uh, teasing out applications from it, we have to have some kind of method for interpreting Scripture, right? So, in other words, it's hard to agree on interpretations of the Bible, until we agree on interpretation and by interpretation what I mean is hermeneutics that's what we're talking about a hermeneutics is the art and the science of interpretation what we're really asking here is what is your interpretive framework for scripture and I think we would agree that you know everyone interprets yes everything everyone interprets everything Mm -hmm. so in that's in one sense everyone does hermeneutics whether we call it that or not yeah but the question is now like are we doing it well that's true Right, so I don't know. What are your thoughts on on it generally? I mean, is this something that, I mean, once we say how do we interpret the Bible? I mean, if we come across, I don't know, you come across somebody on the street says, you know, yeah, Eric, but the Bible's got a thousand different interpretations, and yeah. how do you
2: know? And, yeah, yeah, that's interesting.
0: I mean, that's you hear
2: that. You hear that a lot. Yeah, um, I, I imagine it's used often as a way to um, uh, maybe uh, uh, as an excuse, perhaps to not have to submit to God's Word or not have to, uh, uh, you know, take it seriously too much. You know, a thousand different interpretations, it's it's whatever you want to make of it, so, you know, to each his own kind of thing. But we don't really live like that. Um, what you do know, you mean? What I mean is, like, for for instance, if if people don't like having their words taken out of context, mm. so if if you say something or if I say something publicly— I mean, you see this all the time with the media and politicians, but they say something and if someone takes it out of context and twists it, they get quite upset about that. Yeah. And you want to ask the question, well, why? Why are you upset about someone ripping your words out of context? Because deep down in your in your heart, you understand words have meaning and you had a meaning when you said those words and there's a context to them and you can't just abandon that and say, well... Whatever he said could be interpreted a thousand different ways. So hmm. if that's really how we're gonna live, then we can't really communicate to each other as human beings. Hmm. You know? Uh,
0: you know what's you know what's yeah. interesting? I, I, I think what you're really trying to say is that words have no meaning. That's that's, that's, that's my it. interpretation that's of right. what you're saying. I'm glad you picked that yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just kidding.
2: No, it's funny. I mean, I, I I've um, one person, I, I, don't, I don't remember where I heard this from, but a, a, an analogy was given regarding, uh, let's say, 500 years from now, uh, a future humanity does some archaeological digging. Hmm. And they discover a letter that I wrote to you. And it said that— uh, You wrote me a letter? I did. Aww, I did. I said right. that uh, uh, I really enjoyed our Happy Meal at McDonald's. And it's kind of a silly analogy. So let's just say that those future archaeologists, they look at that that letter and they say, wow, uh, they must have really had a wonderful feast at this uh, Scottish clansman's house, Hmm. you know, because they don't understand the context. They don't know what a Happy Meal is or what McDonald's is. And if you just take those words and rip them out of context, you can make it say something completely ridiculous that Mm -hmm. has no meaning to what actually happened. So... That's why context is important.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, what would be some biblical ex- examples of this, right? I mean, there there are some that come to mind for me. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. this is a conversation I, I, I have fairly regularly with just, you know, a lot of folks have a lot of questions around, um, you know, biblical interpretation. I mean, one example that comes to mind mm-hmm. is um, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. hmm hmm Right. So now, now... In the global church, some believers do just that. Hmm. I walked into Hilltown this morning, and nobody kissed me. Well, I think it I it mean, might be a breath issue. It could be a breath issue. No, I am just, just kidding. <laughs> but but like okay, so here's the question, right? Like, are we is are we in disobedience for not kissing one another, and when we <laughs> greet? And like, if not, why not? I mean, yeah. if if so, like, you know what I'm saying? So there's a, there's a number of examples like this in the Bible. I've got to number of them here yeah, there, yeah. there's a number of different examples like that in the bible where you know we have to have some kind of framework yes.
1: um
0: or or rules that govern uh how we interpret scripture um mm-hmm. i mean there's a sense too in which scripture interprets itself that's right right and so we want to listen to how scripture interprets itself and from that we can derive certain um certain frameworks certain rules of interpretation to see how is scripture doing it so we have kind of a a holy spirit guided hermeneutic mm-hmm. um that but
2: yeah 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 i mean so i, I agree with the, there's so many other examples the holy kiss one the washing each other's feet oh, that's yeah, a big that's one a good that's one. a yep. that's an important one i mean there are churches that do that yeah. that they specifically wash each other's feet now yeah. again the question is is every church required? Right. Is every Christian required to do that? And are we disobedient to the Lord if we don't do that? Yeah. And so I do think that there are some uh, good principles. Uh, I know uh, the ancient uh, or early church father Augustine had some uh, had some good principles uh, about that. Um, and I think one of the key ones is we need to figure out what the author was tr- trying to say. Mm. You know, so That's part of this whole context thing, as far as uh, what was the author trying to communicate to his audience. So you kind of need to know the audience, kind of know the author. Um, What's the culture that they lived in? Hmm. You know, it would be you know it's very different to twenty first century America, first century uh, Palestine. You know,
0: so there's some things to consider. What if somebody came to you and said, you know, uh, let's let's take the. The Holy kiss thing because I, I don't know okay. how you fall on the holy kiss thing personally. I, I do think that that's kind of a cultural form. I agree, so we're not with disobeying that. with by not you know kissing as a greeting, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so okay, so we agree with that, yeah. So, I mean, what if somebody came back and said, uh, you know, but that has the effect of making the Bible culturally relative, hmm. you know, like really what you're doing is here's the plain reading of the text, it says do it, we're not doing it. And, and you're, you're just relativizing things. I've had yeah. actually had some, uh, you know, one believer in particular who felt pretty strongly about some of these questions and, you know, told me just that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that?
2: <laughs> that the idea being that uh, if that kind of a quote-unquote command, yeah. if we relativize that and mm-hmm. say that's the principle behind that is this. Uh, and it's not specifically has to be a holy kiss or a kiss per se that we can just toss out the rest of the Bible. I guess it comes down to how uh, I would say is. I mean, we do have to let we do have to let God's words in a way speak for itself. Um, we do allow for clear passages to help us interpret the the unclear
0: passages. Um, what do you mean by that? That's a good point having the clear passages interpret the unclear passages. I like that. I think that's really good.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and that's also a general principle. It's not like you're going to see that principle spelled out in the text of Scripture itself, but but again, we're talking about just human communication. Yeah. You know, you and I don't have to lay out the principles about how you and I have a conversation with each other for uh, me to know what you're talking about or for you to know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, as far as uh, cl- the clear passages interpreting the unclear passages. I mean, it it seems pretty straightforward that if something is um, is, is is obvious uh, uh, in in the Word of God, um, you know, Jesus rose again on the third day, mm. you know, something like that. I mean, that's you know pretty cut and dry. And if there's something else that's a little bit more difficult, um, you you would use the clear passage as kind of your launching point, if you will. I mean, it's it's saying, okay, this is clearly true. And there's a certain, so with that being true, I can only go like this other passage that's not so clear. It can only be within this range of meaning. It can't be such a meaning that it completely obliterates this clear passage. And I guess the Assumption that underlies that that we're that we're bringing to the text is that scripture is not contradicting itself; hmm. that God has spoken clearly, and He is not a God of confusion. He's not contradicting Himself. Yeah, I guess that's the principle that we bring. That's the assumption that we come to the text with. And of course, unbelievers they would go at the text. In a way, cherry picking and trying to demonstrate, well, this is contradictory. Right. Um, I think a good example would be uh, <laughs> the 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 faith and works relationship. I think is probably a very easy one to to not easy, but important one to uh, address. So, for instance, in James Romans. Well, well yeah, we can start with uh, start yeah. with we can start with uh, James. But Paul uh, and James are yeah, contradicting James. each other, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. big. The classic. Yeah. they they're, Apparently, they're contradicting themselves. So here's what uh, uh, James, uh, let's see what he says there in, uh, was it faith without works is dead? Yeah.
0: James 2.14.
2: 2.14. Okay. Yeah. So what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? You know, that's another question. Another With the question. implied no. Well, yeah, and the implication of cer- yeah, certainly being uh, no. And then, uh, what's the other one? Um,
0: Romans
1: 3.28, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A pretty important one. So that one is, uh, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So, uh, it, it seems at first glance that... There's a a contradiction here, that these two can't both be true at the same time and in the same sense. And that's the definition of contradiction, really, right? The two things cannot be true at the same time in the same sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but the the key here is that when you dive into each of these texts and you you look at the context, you look at what Paul is talking about, what he's trying to say, what James is talking about, what he's trying to say, um, in actuality, they're not contradicting. Right. uh themselves there and so uh, that's kind of what I'm what I'm getting at regarding in, in a way it's almost Paul is very clear and very explicit about about justification by faith and um James that passage in James uh, at first seems like well you know certainly uh you know it's impossible to be uh, uh you know justified just by faith but we see in the context here that James is, um, he's contracting, con- contrasting two different types of, of faith, a faith that has no works and a faith that uh, demonstrates works, which is what he says in, in James 2.18, he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And then uh, James's response is, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So clearly he's talking about a faith that even demons have. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, Satan knows that Jesus is the son of God. Satan knows that he was crucified and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. All these things Satan knows. But not for me. But he hates it. Yeah, Yeah. He hates it. And he does not produce good works. Right. As a result
0: of that. It's not just intellectual assent.
2: Exactly right. And I think... When we look at the context, we can see there's not a contradiction, right. um, and, uh, and Paul is very clear, and you can rest on that and, and, and look at James and say, okay, James can't be talking about you save yourself by your works.
0: You know what this reminds me a little bit of and is uh, you know how there's, there's often a charge. There, there can at times be a charge among the um, non-believing in the scientific community to, to charge Christians as believing in a God of the gaps, <laughs> where where you know a Christian says, "Hey, I can't explain such and such uh, scientific phenomenon given my frame of reference, uh, mm. therefore God did it, mm. right?" And so that's mm. kind of the, the charge is, "Oh, you're just using a God of the gaps." Now there's a you know obviously there's a there's a difference between um, who and how. Yes. Right, So we want to clarify that. But the analogy here is that like a lot of times those who uh, do not um, hold a high view of scripture or who, you know, poke away at certain attempts at contradictions in the Bible, an example being between Paul and James or, you know, another mm-hmm. classic one driving a wedge between Jesus and Paul, you know, Paul preached the gospel, Jesus never did, you know, that, that whole thing. <laughs> well, and, and a lot of that is just, it's t- to my mind, it's the same kind of Charge of intellectual laziness can be applied, right? It's mm. it's kind of a contradiction of the gaps, rather than doing the hard work mm. of getting into the text and saying how do how could these cohere, you know how how do these cohere, mm. um, and just chalking it up to say oh well it's just a contradiction and we can't figure it out. Therefore, you know it, it you know there goes the Bible contradicting itself again, rather mm. than saying no no let's roll up our sleeves and do the hermeneutical work to say. You know, in what sense do the you know do these cohere, and, and how do these how do these cohere? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a it's a bit of a more rigorous exercise. Mm-hmm. So in one sense, mm-hmm. coming with this presupposition of biblical harmony, yes. is, is lends itself to, to to some rigor.
2: Yeah. So you'd say that the saying God of the gaps, uh, too much, let's say saying mm-hmm. that too much, and then also the opposite side of the coin. Saying, "Oh, it's contradiction. Clearly, contradiction. That's both of them are examples of laziness."
0: Yeah, intellectual laziness. I both think of so. them are. I think yeah, so. Yeah, from
2: different perspectives. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
0: well, the charge of just saying, you know, it's to me the same charge can be levied. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: So, like, if an unbeliever comes to me and says, "Here, what do you think of this?" Yeah. So-called contradiction, and if I just say, "Well, you know, you know, God did it, or whatever," and I don't try to work through it, I'm being lazy in a sense. Right. And then, of course, if I actually do the work and, and, and present something and he says, ah, it's a contradiction, you can't harmonize it, then he is being lazy correct, in a different sense.
0: Correct. It's on, so I think the, the, the onus is on Christians to interpret the Bible well. Right. So I, yeah. I think, you know, we when we come to Scripture, it's important that we try to understand what God has said. Yeah, <laughs> Otherwise, God would not have said. Yeah, uh, that's true. So, so God did say, you know, did God really say? Yes, he did really say. Yeah. And, and, and now the onus is on us to to understand that that which he said. Hmm. Um, and so I think that there's a couple of different principles that we can deploy yeah, to yeah. do that. And, you know, I think you touched on one of the probably the biggest ones now. OK, so just yeah. a quick note. There's there's a number of presuppositions when we talk about hermeneutics that we bring to the table. Now, how to warrant these presuppositions is a different question, mm-hmm. all right? And that can be tackled, I think, another day. But True. if we if we presuppose, I think I think as Christians we can presuppose certain governing rules of interpretation. Yeah. One of them being biblical harmony. We're not pitting Paul versus James; they're not contradicting each other. Mm-hmm. We're not pitting Jesus versus Paul. Um, so, like you said, you know. James, James rejects dead faith. Yeah. Paul commends living faith. Yes. So you know, but both can be agreed that works are not the root, but that works are the fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, there's there's a number of important distinctions we want to pay attention to. In addition to that, right? So, like. Look, authorship matters. Yes. When an author deploys certain words, they may mean slightly different things. Um, when when writers are writing about certain topics, they may bring certain kinds of emphases. But at the end of the day, the key presupposition here is that there is one mind behind all of Scripture. One author. One author That's right. behind all of Scripture, and that is God himself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Scripture's construction, therefore— Reflects to us something of the mind of God. Yeah, it's it's a diversity with unity. Yes,
2: in a way. Yeah, to kind of throw out a little trinitarian uh, uh, background there: the diversity and unity. Yeah. Um, so I mean, God is using a diverse, uh, diverse audience, and authors of human authors, but has a unified message. Now, the unbeliever would 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 come at the. Bible uh, already already suppressing the truth of God, and so would not allow for unity, and would say clearly diversity, but so much diversity that they're contradictory. Yeah. there really is no unifying message. Um, and of course, at the other, on other you know on the same side other side of the coin, we want to make sure that we do honor or or recognize the diversity of each author, but you don't have to you don't have to abandon unity. To recognize, um, you know, that one person is writing from one perspective and one person is yeah. writing from a different perspective or to a different audience, for mm. for instance, there.
0: Yeah. Well, so, I mean, a classic one is that some people say, you know, the New Testament God and the Old Testament God oh, are, yes. are different gods. And the <laughs> New Testament God is all sunshine and rainbows. And the and Old unicorns. Te- don't and unicorns. unicorns. And the Old Testament God is a genocidal bully. right? But yes, Well, this is one of the true. reasons why that doesn't work, right? And quite apart from the fact that it doesn't, mesh with the presupposition, it's, it's poor. It's, 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 exegetically poor. Right. Yeah. So the old Testament will say, you know, God will say, turn, turn. Why should you die? The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Yes. Lots of passages like that. In the new Testament, we have hell, right? Talked about by Jesus most often. So it's like, and the wrath of the lamb and and the wrath of the lamb, right? In Revelation. Well, I think part of the reason we think that the new Testament, quote unquote, new Testament God is all sunshine and rainbows is because, you know, maybe we don't believe in hell. So we kind of gloss over mm. passages about hell, but in reality, both God's mercy and God's judgment, as we move from Old Testament to New Testament, get ratcheted up, mm. right? But I mean, that to me is just quite apart from the fact that it fits the basic presupposition of biblical unity. It's better exegesis. Mm-hmm. It's better interpretation of passages. It's better hermeneutics. You you end up, um, you end up paying closer attention to the, to the text. I think.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's almost a principle of innocent until proven guilty. In some ways, like if you, let's say you write something, uh, and there are you know several different books, and you might see you might write a letter to somebody and a and a a letter to somebody else, and you might use different uh, terminology. You know, if you're writing a letter to a a a seminary friend of yours, and then you're writing a letter to a a close family member, you're going to be using different language, and it might appear that yeah, this is interesting. You know, he's changing. He's changing his. His 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 uh, writing style per se, you know. That's how some unbelievers uh, they try to they try to do that with Paul. They say, well, uh, this letter to uh, you know you know the Philippians or whatever, it wasn't from Paul because he it's using different words, it's using different um, a style than let's say his letter to the Romans or to the Corinthians. But I mean, they don't they don't allow for the fact that an author. Um, depending on the audience, you know, one, he might be writing to a church that he's never met before. Yeah. That's one thing. And then he could be writing to a church that he was just at and is deeply grieved over because of something that's been happening. Um, you know, a clear example would be the, the church at Rome. He wanted to go there, and he had not yet gone there, and he didn't plant that church. But the Corinthians, you know, he has a very deep, uh, intimate relationship with them. And so you're going to see those differences, and if you go into it saying they're all guilty uh, until proven innocent, you know, well then, that, that's you're, you're always going to end up with contradictions that you discover, right? So to speak. Yeah. But we don't actually do that in real life. I mean, if you write something, uh, multiple things, we're not going to assume that. Well, of course, Dylan is contradicting himself here and here and here. Well, no. How about you give the author the benefit of the doubt until he clearly demonstrates he's contradicting
0: himself? Yeah. You know. Yeah. No, that's a good point. That's a really good point. All right. So, so we have one hermeneutical principle here, yeah. right? The first, it might be a biblical harmony. You know, yes. here's uh, we, we are coming in with the presupposition that uh, the Bible as a whole uh, coheres. What would be? So I, I've got, I've got three or four uh, here, but what are, what are some other principles that kind of w- we, we bring to the text when um, you know, to help us interpret well?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah I think it's part of the whole context thing. Um, mm. uh, one I would say is, is, is okay, I'll break it down this way. We've already mentioned authorship, mm-hmm. okay, so that's important. audience. That's more of a historical context. The author lived at a certain time. audience lived at a certain time. And that's important, of course. Cultural context, same idea. That's kind of, where are they geography-wise? Are they in Babylon? Are they in Israel? That's kind of important. And then there's also that theological context. And that's pretty much saying, what covenant are they in? What, uh, what, what you, could, you could say, um, yeah. what, what is happening theologically at this time? Where are... The people at theologically That's at this point. time. Yeah. So you know, for example, you 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 would it'd be important to understand uh, with the giving of let's say the law in Exodus and Deuteronomy, um, and you can see hints of it because throughout the giving of that law, you see clues of God warning the people of Israel that the nations that they're they're going into dis, into displace those nations are getting um, kicked out because of their wickedness. So there's a context here the context is israel just been delivered from slavery in egypt and they're about ready to go into the promised land and and there's a a covenant that is made basically at mount sinai between uh, god and the people of israel and in that context law is given and so that's important also to see as well.
0: So we do do. Should we be sacrificing animals at our at at Hilltown? But you don't do that. Okay. <laughs> why? Why not though? Right. Why do we not yeah. sacrifice animals today? Yeah, exactly. Because uh, I read. You know, are we getting rid of the whole sacrificial system in the old Old Testament? Yeah, I'm afraid we are. No. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh,
2: it's just you know, it's not it's not clean anymore. It's too much blood. <laughs> uh, I'd say we'll just give the Sunday school answer because Jesus. Okay. Right. So <laughs> not to be that's a good uh, word. Yeah, it does that's always a good answer, right? Whenever <laughs> anyone asks you a question, Jesus. Yep, there you go. But um, again, it's that is that context are you know, what has happened since the time of the temple and the animal sacrifices? Well, um, clearly for you and I, we know temple's gone. Hmm. The physical temple is is kaput, right? Mm-hmm. Um But even if there were a temple. Should we build one? Yeah, well, that's another question of the day. But uh, yeah, I'll get to that. Exactly. Should we build one? But even if there were a temple, even if there were a temple, uh, because uh, the new covenant, Hmm. which we saw prophesied in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, Hmm. um, I will inaugurate a new covenant, not like the old covenant that they broke, but a new one. Uh, I'll write the law on their hearts, and, and so on and so forth. And then we do see um, Jesus in the Gospels as the Passover Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb, uh, the the atoning sacrifice. And of course, in the in the letters uh, of the apostles, uh, for Paul, for instance, who uh, who declares that um, uh, he he was made uh, to be sin hmm. uh, on our behalf. Uh, uh, and uh, and was crucified, uh, so there's that atonement concept uh, there, a propitiation for our sins, and so and then of course Hebrews is uh, is an important book in the New Testament that clearly demonstrates the inability of those animal sacrifices to actually take away sin, uh, the blood of bulls and goats, um, and that they were a picture or a type of the ultimate sacrifice of. Christ and so, essentially, it's it's important to understand what covenant are we operating in here, yeah. and uh, uh, the idea of progressive revelation, right? Mm-hmm. That yes, God did speak, but He didn't stop there. He didn't stop at Mount Sinai. He kept going, and now He has completed His word to us uh, with the giving of the of the New Testament revelation.
0: Yeah, I think that's really good. I think, I think you nailed it there. And, and here's the other thing, too. So, like, when we—just to complement that, when we as Christians read the Old Testament, mm-hmm. right, part of our hermeneutical responsibility, I think, is to ask when we're reading passages to say, what is this text pointing towards, right? How is mm-hmm. it announcing the coming Messiah? How is it pointing us to Christ? And then similarly, when we read the New Testament, part of our hermeneutical responsibility, you know, is to say, you know, what are the biblical antecedents to this text? How was this announced in the Old Testament? Right. So, um, you know, like you mentioned Christ as the sacrificial lamb. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. Um, and Christ is our sacrificial lamb. We're not, we don't have a, temp, a centralized temple that we all go and worship, but Christ is our temple. Right. We we God's people no longer constitute a nation. Right. Like Mm. Israel. The church is a global multinational entity. Um, So, well, along the lines of this covenantal piece, and this may Mm. be something we tease out as we you know, when we get to talking about the law. Mm. um, We do want to we have a New Testament control principle. Yeah. In one sense, right? Yeah. So we look at the Old Testament, we look at the New Testament, and we see the New Testament as hermeneutically controlling because of this point that you mentioned about progressive revelation. Yeah. Um, what was it Warfield who gave the analogy of, you know, in the Old Testament, it's like we're standing in a, in a living room mm-hmm. and you see, you know, maybe the silhouettes of furniture, but yeah. it's all dark and you can't see it that clearly. Mm-hmm. And then as we progress through redemptive history and as we move forward in Scripture— then the lights get turned on a little bit a little bit, little yeah. by little yeah. so that the, the whole, you're in the same room the whole time it's the yeah. same furniture has always been there yes. but we can see it more clearly as we move forward now when we talk about this new that's what we mean by new testament control principle it's mm-hmm. you know the the fullness of revelation has come we see what god's plan was all along for the sacrificial system and for the temple and mm-hmm. etc mm-hmm. now how how we articulate this new testament control principle has very um has large ramifications for how we put our whole bible together as mm-hmm. you know right so here's one way we could put it uh you could say everything in the old testament is binding on believers today unless the new testament specifically amends it mm. Now, that's rigid, right? Everything unless explicitly abrogated. Here's another posture. You could say, whatever changes least in God's commands on his people as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament is binding on believers today. So it's a little more flexible. Only what has been repeated is, is applicable for believers today. Now, I... I don't know about you. I mean, I see wise and godly examples of, of men interpreting and putting the Bible together on both sides of that question. Hmm. Um, that to me is is a tough one. And I think it's one that we should tease out when we talk about law. Yeah, I think it's just important. exactly how the New Testament control principle works itself out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, well, anyway. We well, can, it's
2: not just a New Testament control. It, I mean, it, that's part obviously of Obviously, today it is. Yeah. But a good example of even within the Old Testament, the progressive revelation concept. So, for instance, yeah, at point. the end of the flood, hmm. God tells Noah, every animal is now given to you for food. So, previously, prior to Noah, uh, animals were not given by God as food to humanity. They were to eat every plant, and, and green, green plant, and the fruit of that. But, obviously, Noah was able to eat Unclean animals. There's no clean now. Certainly, there's clean and unclean animals mentioned in the Ark, but it doesn't specify as far as what he's allowed to eat mm. regarding those animals. Those food laws come into effect uh, with the with further revelation, right. um, giving of the law by uh, through Moses. Yeah, uh, to the people of Israel. So even there, we do see a, a progressing of sorts, and it's it's actually it is kind of interesting. You know the the menu was larger at the time of Noah. It narrowed at the time of 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 the old covenant under Moses, and the menu became larger again mm. um, with Christ. Even He Himself said, "It's not that it's not the, what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It was come out of your mouth." And right. the author even says, parenthetically, He was thus declaring all foods clean. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in that way, theoretically speaking you and i can have the bacon wrapped scallops <laughs> that that i, I i'm assuming I do i'm love assuming scallops.
1: exactly they're, they're <laughs> yeah. quite
0: delicious i'm assuming noah could have them but moses could not
1: yeah
0: it's interesting it's a really good point about um intra covenantal progressive revelation mm-hmm. um something that in 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 all cases what we are doing here is we are uh well, maybe not in all cases an exception being the one you mentioned but in in many cases, what we're doing is we are clarifying something yes. even intra-covenantal. So I think of the sacrificial structure, again, back in, um, I think, Deuteronomy, and kind of teasing some of that out. But then we also see in Hosea 6, where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Yes. So like now, yes. okay, so are, is that a contradiction? Like, like Lord, you just gave us this whole sacrificial system. And then yeah. over here, you're like, well, just kidding, I don't want sacrifice. And, and I mean, here what we have is we have intra-covenantal distinction that – and I think what the Hosea 6 passage, you know, another principle being um, we want to – when we have antithetical points like that, we are asking ourselves, um, is this a rhetorical device to say when push comes to shove, Mm -hmm. here's where we land? So another example might be when Jesus says, um, you know, unless you hate your mother and your father Mm – well, you know, that's not saying—he'll he'll also be the first one to say, honor your mother and father. Yes. Right? But yes. but here, what he is saying in that, you know, unless you hate your mother and father, you can't be my disciple. He's saying, look, um, if push comes to shove, this is where you land. This is where your loyalties lie. Yes. Right? So it's kind yeah. of a rhetorical device in that sense. I see it something is. similar going on with that Hosea 6 and sacrificial system. But the point being, it can even be intra-covenantal that yes. we're, we're listening for those pointers.
2: Yeah. And uh, and I can kind of like the example where where Jesus— the one, the one of the few times where he actually praises the Pharisees, because they tithe, yeah. mint every mint every human they tithe it all, and that was great. They should have done that yep. and not neglected the weightier matters of the law. So weightier they, matters? Are yeah. you
0: saying that there's a hierarchy within the law, Eric?
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we, can we talk are. about that when we talk about <laughs> law. But there certainly, there certainly is. Which I think Jesus always always hits them on hits them with right because he hits them with um uh which one of you you know if the, if the lamb fell into a ditch would not rescue it i mean isn't that technically working um healing a man on the sabbath um you know you know th- those principles there and of course he even calls them out on it saying well your priests they circumcise people on the sabbath and they do sacrifices on on the sabbath are they breaking the hmm. law so it was a it was, a, it was a it was a it was a wrong prioritization that, mm-hmm. that the pharisees were engaging in. Yeah. Um and he's just Jesus is reordering the proper balance of things, if you will. Yeah. That's if that good. makes sense. Yeah.
0: Let me give you another can I can I yeah, offer please. another principle? Sure. Um and then we'll riff on this one, governing texts. So I confess, you know, b- before I um before I did any kind of formal study, uh this one I found frustrating for a while because I, I, I wrestled with this one for some time mm. what I mean by governing texts is sometimes uh, there are passages which we interpret uh, in light of other passages mm. such that you know passage B serves as a control for passage a right and it, it kind of like what you were saying the, the more clear the clearer texts um, interpret. Uh, interpret the less clear texts. Yeah, um, and I had a tough time with this one for a while. So let's come back to the James and Paul example for, oh, just for let's a minute, do right? It. So, so Protestants, this is just as an example of this governing texts concept. Protestants will look at p- what Paul wrote, right, and we'll say justification is by faith alone. Now, a yeah. Roman Catholic might look at what James wrote and say justification is not by faith alone. And now the question is, which text is the is the controlling text? So that, you know, one faction of of the Christian community might say, you know, such and such a text can't mean what you think it means because there's this other text over here. Now, Mm. does that make sense? Like that Mm. to me is an appropriate response when there's a contradiction and no means of reconciliation between the two interpretations. Yes. But often there's no necessary contradiction like we saw with James and Paul. So now which text controls the interpretation of the other? You see what I'm saying? Now I agree that there's this piece of um, you know which text is clearer. Mm-hmm. So in my you know one of the things I was giving some thought to is like, okay, how do we, how do we decide? Like what constitutes a clearer text?
2: Um, uh, you know, red letters, right? Red letters. No, I'm sorry, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Yeah, I was. That's a joke. Yeah. And some people believe that though. By some the way, people that, do. Yeah. That Jesus' words have more weight than the right. words of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Which are the words in black. It's unfortunate. You know, it is unfortunate. Yeah, Governing text, yeah, that's a difficult uh, uh, problem. Well, it, it can be. It can be a problem. It can be, sure. If you, if you say, yeah, this is my interpretation of this gr- um, governing text and everything else must be, and I will twist everything else in pretzels to make it fit yeah. my so-called governing text, and you have to be careful about that and basically say, if I'm going to... Am I using, am I interpreting my own governing text properly? That's that's key, A. Yeah. So problem A is whatever text I use as my governing text, quote-unquote, am I using that properly is number one. Am I interpreting that properly? And then number two, these other texts that um, I'm seeing problems with, am I looking at them properly? Again, the whole, the whole James Paul issue. It's not a problem when... You look at what is each one talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, I, yeah. I don't. It doesn't. I'm not trying to say that Paul governs James or that James governs Paul. Right. They govern themselves. Yeah. James is the one that sets the parameters for what he's talking about, and so does Paul. And when you when we realize that, we can put the two together, because they, again, a contradiction is something that can't be. True at the same time and at in the same sense, so Paul and James are at the same time, right? New covenant, uh, New Testament, right? But in different senses, though. Mm-hmm. If they were talking about the same exact thing in the same exact sense, it would be a contradiction. Mm-hmm. So the question is, are they? Is there a different sense that they're talking about? And I think it, I think it's clear in the text that there is. Yeah. It just takes that. We don't want to be that that laziness. you want to avoid. It's so easy to say. Well, gotcha. You know. James says in in 2:24 person is justified by works not by faith alone. Boom, nailed it. But context, right? You got to finish or look at what's coming before and what's coming after uh, in James's thought. What's he talking about?
0: There are things I think that that when we when we ask, you know, what is a particular biblical author talking mm-hmm. about? There are things that that shade our notion of context so i guess what i mean let, let's take an easy example mm-hmm. first um we were talking earlier about the number of times a particular thing is mentioned in scripture yeah you know the foot washing you know mentioned once yes. um baptism for the dead <laughs> i mean i don't know what that, i mean i Some guesses on what that means, but I'm I'm not going to like impose that on the conscience of the church because it's mentioned only once. Not because it's not that God has to say something multiple times for it to be authoritative. Yeah, Yeah. it's not that. That's not the point at all. The point is, you know, if this is something that's going to be imposed on the conscience of of the the church qua church, then we better make sure that we're getting it right in terms of what it means. Mm -hmm. And so, part of what it means for us to say, okay. Mm. I am confident in my interpretation of this particular passage, yes. whatever it is. Yes. Um, part of that looks like seeing that command, let's just take a command for example, um, You know, wash one another's feet, in multiple contexts. Mm-hmm. So as I see it in multiple contexts, I can start to put a kind of frame of reference around what's in view. Mm-hmm. Um, another, another example being kind of like redemptive historical scope, there, there's something in me that wants to say. Uh, if if the if the passage in view, the passage in view is controlling or governing, in so far as it, it in some kind of proportion to the scope of redemptive history that it covers. So I give you an example. I heard a fantastic, um, probably the best lecture I've ever heard on First Corinthians 15 mm. was by a, a chap named Lane Tipton. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm familiar with the name. Yeah, yeah, I had a couple of classes with Tipton in, in at Westminster, and his his work on First Corinthians 15 is just first class, absolutely first class. But one of the one of the he 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 uses First Corinthians 15 as a framework for a number of different passages, uh, you know, partly because um, the redemptive historical scope within First Corinthians 15, in particular verses 35 to 50 is is very very broad mm-hmm. all from from adam to christ mm-hmm. to the giving of the spirit life-giving spirit as opposed to kind of protological pro, protological man mm-hmm. just with you know the first adam to eschatological man in, in the new adam in christ mm-hmm. um sorry i don't mean to throw out the fancy words fancy. but it's hard not to do that after listening no. to tipton yeah sure. <laughs> but 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 the point being the redemptive historical scope is is very very broad and there's something in that that would be could be proportional to the extent to which it constitutes a governing mm. uh, lens, or or how much of the context of that passage we bring in when we read in other passages about about maybe Pentecost and what it means for mm. for Christ the exalted Son uh, and and the Spirit to have an overlap in function, the Spirit of Christ, as mm-hmm. it were. Um, so it's it just. Very, very – maybe a bit heady, maybe a bit too heady for a podcast, but that to my mind is is one example um, where the redemptive historical scope is very broad.
2: Yeah, so I guess kind of like – I'll try to put it in layman's terms. Yeah, please. No, but you're saying that there's there's texts that are talking about the forest, and then there are texts that are talking about specific trees. In the forest, and you know, so the the governing text is the very broad application. This is true, and these other things are true inside of this.
0: The o- yes, yes. The only thing there with the the forest being a spatial concept, whereas what yeah. I'm talking about is a temporal concept. I see. Redemptive history, but but yeah, yeah. Analogously, that's the point. That's okay. That's right.
2: All right. Fair enough. Yeah. No, fair enough. So, so yeah, we've we, so so far we've looked at these three major. Uh, principles.
0: Okay, oh, can I give you one uh, more. Yeah, sorry, you just read. one more on, on this on this notion of like controlling passage. Yeah, because this I, I hear this one comes up a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, I need the clarity's good. Well, Galatians three twenty-eight. Okay, and First Timothy two okay. twelve. Okay, so so Galatians three twenty-eight. Hit me with it. There is no male or female. All right, Uh-oh. so there's more than that, right? Yeah, of course. But, so this is what's interesting. So a lot of times, um, one of the things you will hear uh, in uh, non-believing circles who mm-hmm. who who put themselves to the task of studying the Bible mm-hmm. um, will will take this as a controlling text. Hmm. There is no male or female, right? Yeah. So that at the end of the day, it's just, there's this notion of uh, gender fluidity locked into Galatians oh, 3.28. I see what you're but, saying. But it's in a sense that it becomes controlling for every other passage. Hmm. So that when you come to a 1 Timothy 2.12, where at, at whatever 1 Timothy 2.12 is saying, at a minimum, there mm-hmm. is a distinction between men and women,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? But but for those for whom Galatians three twenty eight is a governing text or a controlling text, they will chalk up texts like First Timothy two twelve as being to, you know, um, that's just how they did it, in, it's culturally relative. That's just how they did it in Paul's day. In reality, yeah. we know there's no male or female. Yeah. Right. So. Right. In our hearts, we have to be extra careful here because sometimes we want certain texts to come out certain ways. Yeah. Right? And it's and this is why it's so clutch for us to, like, weigh all of the texts carefully in light of all that Scripture says about men and women, for example. Yeah. Right? Um,
1: hmm. Yeah. So no, it's
2: a lot there, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, yeah. People can take a text and run with it. And, and in a way, take it out of context. Um, you know, one example that comes to my mind is when I studied Martin Luther and he ha- he was challenged by the Zwickau Prophets and uh, basically these guys that were denying the uh, importance of Scripture and they were getting they were getting personal revelation from God Himself um, and you know, they called themselves the, Pro- the Zwickau Prophets and and they wanted people to follow after them and they were very apocalyptic and uh, they, they were uh, raising up armies and trying to do all kinds of crazy things. But uh, they would, they would, their argument was, um, the, the letter kills. The letter mm-hmm. kills and the Spirit gives life. And they, that passage, they took that out of context. And they said, well, letter refers to all of God's written word, mm-hmm. all of God's word. And so they used that as their governing, governing text, yes. but they used it wrongly. Right. And based upon that, they said, now we're in the age of the quote-unquote spirit where we get direct revelation from god that guides us and tells us what to do and that's the that's it right there the I spirit mean, I has taught me that a spirit... passage
0: means such and such exactly
2: exactly <laughs> i get this divine revelation from god himself. oh there's a,
0: there's a great story there was a this is a, a, a who a pastor told this story he was in the car with uh, his his dad. His own. Da- he was not a pastor at the time. He was a, yeah. a, a teenager. Yeah. And uh, his dad was a pastor. His dad was driving, and he had a sister in a car, and her, his sister's boyfriend. Okay. So, um, sister's boyfriend wanted to impress the Christian family. Oh. And good. says, uh, you know, I was I was having my devotions and, and this morning, and and <laughs> the spirit taught me. Oh boy. That that a passage meant such and such, <laughs> and in the in in God's uh, <laughs> in God's wisdom. <laughs> uh, it just so happened that the teenage son of the family had had his. He says, "Well, it just so happens that I had my devotions today too in that same passage." And I mean, I I think that you got that interpretation by misunderstanding the King James version. And I just had my devotions this morning in, in on that passage in Greek, and actually, it means such and such. Hmm. And then the boyfriend said, "Well, that that can't be right because the Spirit has taught me hmm. that it means." such hmm. and such and and the sister trying to defend her boyfriend said you know spiritual things are spiritually discerned oh yes I see <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> and then he said well then the um, the son said well you know I guess if you push me I would say well the spirit taught me that it means something else and now what do you do you can't yeah. appeal to the text because both people are saying well, both people spirit are saying the spirit
2: them. Them. led this that yep. and, and we can certainly talk about how the Spirit's rolling yeah hermeneutics is and that's an important part by the way as far as like it with is. unbelief and, and
0: believers but uh, and then the boyfriend said yeah. oh, well i guess the spirit teaches different things to different people Ooh, Ooh yeah and then the yeah. dad the dad who was the pastor Slam driving the he just said no huh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's interesting oh, and we're man. down back to relativism again Yeah, yeah. subjectivity yeah so i mean as we wrap up our our time here, I know there's a a lot more we could hit on uh, with, with this topic and we just touched the surface of it, but those three principles, those macro principles, I think are very important uh, there to, to guide us in how we approach scripture. Um, And, uh, and in fact,
0: uh, uh, I think there are, we're, there are others, but we're, oh, we're yes. out of time, but there yeah. are others. So yeah. I, I mean, I would highly recommend pick up pickups. There's great resources. or I, I yeah. see Eric. You yeah, I brought, uh, I brought a book I, I
2: read for, uh, for seminary at Liberty university. It's this called hermeneutics principles and processes of biblical interpretation by Henry a Verkler and Carolyn Griber. I pronounced this hopefully properly. Io. um, but it's really neat because each chapter has exercises at the end of it that you can do, questions uh, to answer. And, um, and it goes through examples of, of common mistakes that are made yeah. in, in hermeneutics. And it's not a very long book. It's, it's pretty short. Uh, in the end, it's, it's about 200 pages long, but an easy read. Yeah. I, I actually really enjoyed it. So, so I, this I would, is one.
0: That's a good. I would re- also recommend um, Hermeneutics, Authority, and Canon. Yeah. Uh, I think it was edited by Carson uh, and a number of others, just a collection of essays yeah. on on hermeneutics yeah. and and scripture generally, because there's a lot more to this that we did not cover. Yeah. Um, but but definitely uh, hope that you know appetites have been whetted. Yeah. To go and explore further.
2: Yeah. yeah. And maybe uh, we can apply. I can apply that now with our proverbial challenge. We're Why? Yes, to-
0: you can, Eric. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So so yeah. In in the name of you know with the theme of hermeneutics here. Okay. All right. Proverb of the day. Proverb of the day. Challenge is um, Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Oh, you gave me two? Oh, there are probably one proverb, right? Well, two separate separate verses here. Proverbs 26, 4. Answer not a fool according to his (laughs) folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly. Less be wise in his own eyes. Oh man, it's a little hermeneutical challenge here, right? That's, that's, that, is that a contradiction? Uh, challenge accepted.
2: Excellent. Uh, I, uh, I'll try to knock this one out in just a few minutes. It's a, it's a good one. This yeah. is one of my favorite passages, by the way. Excellent. So I appreciate you, you picking that one. Uh,
0: so he didn't know that, by the way. No, I that's, totally that's just... right. Yeah, yeah. For <laughs>
2: those of you who are just tuning in, uh, we're going back and forth to this proverbial challenge, kind of stump the dummy kind of thing uh, here. So now it's my turn to be under the under the gun. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I appreciate the, uh, the challenge. So how I would, how I would tackle this. Okay. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So first of all, what's, what's seemingly being communicated in this proverb and a proverb is, uh, generally speaking, proverbs are, 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 are general truths that, um, they are not how I should say, um, truths that you take to the infinite degree. They're not case law. Yeah, it's not exactly, exactly not case law. So um, there's plenty of examples of that, but I'll, I'll show how that works out here. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So there's a sense in which um, if you were to answer a fool according to his folly, um, you would look foolish. I mean, you would be joining him in his, in his foolishness. Um, and so the, the proverb is basically giving you a warning. You know, be careful about that, or you're going to look just like him if you if you get up there and try to tackle him on his own ground. But then verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Contradiction? Again, yeah, seemingly, seemingly, but not. Ah, but excellent. not. Because <laughs> what's this also saying? Well, there's also, a, there's also a truth in the sense that if a fool is allowed to keep speaking, he... Will come away, and if no one answers him, no one responds. Everyone is silent. He thinks he's won. He thinks he's wise. Everyone else's mouth is closed, right? The fool can come away boasting and saying, "Ah, look at them! None of them have a single answer for me." So uh, you see both both sides of it. It's two different senses, right? One is from the sense of the fool. Okay, if he um, continues speaking and no one responds to him, he will be wise in his own eyes. And then the other side of it is from your perspective. If you act like him, you're going to make yourself a fool just like him. And so how do you navigate that? Well, you don't want to—you want to be careful. When you engage with the fool, don't play his game, okay? Don't join in the same game that he's playing. But when you do answer him, make sure you do so with care. Make sure you do so, um, perhaps in a way uh, presuppositionally. We can talk about that more later. But to give a, a simple example, um, it would be like when Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees on numerous occasions, and they were trying to, uh, they were trying to trap him. Right. A good example would be the the paying taxes to Caesar. Mm-hmm. Is it lawful? Or is it not lawful? Ha. Huh. We got you here. Well, he's not going to play their game with them. It's not a yes or no answer, right? If he plays that game with them, he loses because he's either a rebel saying you can't pay taxes. And now we've got him, or he's a, he's a collaborator. Oh, look at that. He's a Caesar lover. He's all about paying the taxes, but no, he doesn't answer them according to their folly. He answers them differently, right? He addresses their underlying assumptions, and he destroys it. And he, and he, and he shows them a very powerful argument. You give uh, to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And they had no response to him because of it. I think that's a good example of, of this principle being played out. He didn't answer them according to, the, to their folly, but he did answer them. He did respond. He didn't just be quiet and walk away, and then they say, we got him. Jesus has no answer to our challenge. No, 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 that's not the case at all. So mm-hmm. I think that's, a, sorry, not a little more than two minutes or so, but uh, that would be how I how I challenged that, so uh,
1: boom,
0: boom, <laughs> knocked out of the park.
1: Man.
0: Oh yeah, well, I can't. I, <laughs> yeah. I got nothing to add to that. that oh well, I appreciate that. that appreciate excellent. that. Okay, good so, stuff. So, yeah. Well, well, listen. So this has been two guys in the Bible. Next week we're gonna tackle uh, tackle. It makes it sound so. We're gonna discuss football marriage. analogy. Yeah, football analogy with marriage. We're gonna discuss marriage, and uh, I. But um, yeah, definitely feel free. So we listen. We love questions. We would love to get your questions. Feel free to email us at two at gmail.com with the uh, the two being spelled out there, T W O, two guys in a Bible.podcast at gmail.com. Also, feel free to visit our Facebook page, mm. facebook.com forward slash the number two, two guys in a Bible. Uh, and also, shout us out on Twitter. We love getting tweets uh, at two guys in a Bible, the number two there as well. Uh, my name is Dylan Kennison here with Eric Leupold, And until next time, God bless. And God bless.